Welcome to Tax Wrap, the podcast of Tax and Super Australia. Each fortnight, we present news and insights to tax and SMSF practitioners. If you've got any questions, comments or even suggestions, get in touch at podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Tax Wrap podcast, the first of the year 2020. Welcome back. I uh, hope you all had a safe and happy uh, holiday period. I certainly did. I'm joined by John Jeffries, our Senior Tax Counsel at Tax and Super Australia. Hi, John. How are you going, Steve? Thanks for being here. Uh, this is episode 206. And um, in the interim, John, between uh, we, our break and us coming back, uh, actually a lot has happened, it seems. Yes. I hope you can fill us in on, on what has developed in the world of tax uh, in the interim. Yes, well, that's right, Steve. I keep uh, a list of all of the new developments that are going on during the year, and uh, there is quite a high proportion that has come out in December. So Hmm. a lot of cases, and I suppose that... uh, Government departments push things out before Christmas. Oh, John, notice on your desk the pile of paper kept growing to your left mm, there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. New so legislation, cases, etc. Plenty of Christmas reading. <laughs> so, what have you got for us? What's the what stands out amongst that lot? Okay, well, there's quite a few interesting things. I'm going to talk about some cases and a PCG. The first one is a case called Eichmann, and it's to do with the small business CGT concessions and whether a particular asset was an active asset for the small business CGT purposes, which, of course, it must be. And so the decision in this case was that a certain piece of land, which was used to store materials uh, for the taxpayer's business, was held not to be an active asset. All right, yep. So uh, the facts were that the, uh, the taxpayer who owned the land operated a business through their family trust, uh, a business of building, bricklaying and paving. And so they bought this block of land which was next to their house uh, some years ago, a vacant block of land, and they used that block of land to store their equipment. Okay. You know, yeah. I suppose the wheelbarrows and the concrete mixer and... Cement bags the and... car and... Yeah. Perhaps and uh, all of those sorts of things. Right. And so the taxpayer sold the land in October 2016 for $935,000 and made a capital gain. Right. Now, uh, with all of the other normal tests being satisfied, the question was whether this block of land was indeed an active asset. Now, of course, um, the taxpayer was a connected entity or an affiliate of the uh, entity carrying on the business, that is the trust, and so all of those uh, conditions were in place. So the question was here before the federal court whether uh, this block of land was an active asset. Hmm. Now the taxpayer had won the decision in the administrative appeals tribunal. Okay, so it had been through a little bit of a process up till yes. up till now. So what court is this being heard in? Uh, this case we're talking about is now the federal court right. before a single judge, Derrington. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the case was appealed by the commissioner to the federal court. Right. And so uh, the commissioner lost in the AAT but won in the federal court. Hmm. Now, I don't know whether this decision is again to be appealed to the full court, but at the moment it stands that the commissioner has won the case. Right, right. And one would have to say that I'm a bit surprised at it because somewhere this business has to store its... Things. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, where is he going to put his trowel and his wheelbarrow and his um, all of the things he uses for bricklaying and yeah. even some spare bricks and so forth? They've mm. got to be stored somewhere. Yeah. And so 
uh, at least on the face of it, you'd have thought the land was being used for the purpose of the business. Yeah, yeah. And certainly it was, but the court uh, drew a distinction between um, land that's kind of used a little bit and where it's wholly or predominantly uh, where uh, the asset is used in carrying on the business. Right, right. So what the commissioner argued was that there must be a more than incidental use of the land for it to be used in the ordinary course of carrying on a business, which is required by the law. Yeah. And so that was the, the point was put, and the commissioner went back to the original explanatory memorandum and said, uh, look, here are the examples. These are examples where uh, assets are being used in a not incidental way, and yeah. therefore the law ought to be interpreted in that way. Right, okay. And uh, broadly, the judge agreed with the tax office. Uh, he referred to a particular high court decision, uh, not a tax uh, decision, oh, right. and decided that uh, the asset uh, must have uh, what they call functional relevance to the business activities. And so, um, without going much more into the details, Steve, right. it's an interesting case because uh, I would certainly have advised this taxpayer, if based on what I'd read in the case, yeah. that. Uh, that piece of land would have been an active asset. However, uh, the, this court, the federal court, has decided that, in fact, that's not the case. And, indeed, the commissioner uh, is pushing the point. Yeah. So I do hope the case gets appealed and gets overturned. But at the moment, that's where it stands. That's where it is. I mean, as practitioners, we have taxpayers, clients who have a shared it and they store things. I suppose you've got to issue the warning to say, well, actually, let's, uh, let's take this into account. Because it certainly mm. opens up the question of degree. To what degree uh, do you have to use it? Now, I must say that in reading uh, this whole case, uh, I suspect the taxpayer could have got a better outcome if right back at the um, private ruling request stage, um, they have written their private ruling request in perhaps a more helpful manner, if I can say I that. I see, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, if they'd have thought about those issues more deeply and really pushed the point of how the land was used yeah. in the business uh, far more, that maybe this may not have ever arisen. But at any rate, here it yeah, is, here and it is. it's one for all practitioners to note. Yes, yes, exactly. It's funny how court cases do that. I mean, it can apply to a lot more uh, situations than, than one thinks. Mm. Well, that's an interesting one. We'll keep an eye on that and possibly revisit if it does get appealed, etc. Um, what else came across your desk, John, that took your fancy? So uh, there's another uh, case, again, in the federal court called Helios, Helios Limited. Helios is a public company. And this question was over whether lump sum payments made to doctors by um, Helios, actually a subsidiary of Helios, because right. um, Helios was uh, the head company of a consolidated group, uh, whether those payments, which were ostensibly for the goodwill of the doctor's practices, whether they were tax deductible. Okay. And the federal court held that they were tax deductible. And so this is something just uh, to note, because on the face of it, you would think, well, payment for goodwill, um, surely that's of a capital nature, mm. uh, why deductible? Well, when the, the court looked uh, at the particular arrangement, so, so what happened here was the uh, Helios wanted to get medical practitioners operating in their uh, medical practice 
facilities. In their buildings, uh, sort of? Yes. Okay. In their, uh, and so, uh, in essence, that was their business. That right. is, the provision of a facility to a medical practitioner okay. to provide medical services. And so some of the debate was, well, in fact, a lot of the debate was about what was the taxpayer's business actually in truth. So what happened was uh, the taxpayer would go along to a doctor and say, uh, why don't we acquire your practice and we'll pay you a lump sum. And in the particular one, it was $350,000. And so the doctor would, uh, in quote, sell the practice Mm -hmm. to the taxpayer And the doctor then agreed to work at that medical centre or one of the medical centres for at least five years for a certain number of hours. And with it, there was also a restraint of trade clause. That is, the doctor couldn't go off and compete with the taxpayer. Okay. Now, it needs to be understood that the doctor was not an employee of the taxpayer. They were bringing their medical practice in. Yep. The taxpayer was paying for it. And... The uh, medical practitioner also uh, paid uh, 50% of the fees, which were all bulk billed, to the taxpayer for the operation of the facility. Oh, I see, to be in the premises. Yes, that's right. Now, the question was whether the lump sums paid up front to the doctors were deductible. And Mm. as I've said, the court held that, in fact, they were deductible. Mm. Now, the reason for this is that the court looked at the document which said, uh, the contract, which said uh, the doctor is selling the practice to the taxpayer and and there's goodwill, and the court said, no, that's not what's happening here at all. Uh, The taxpayer is not buying the practice at all. What they are doing is receiving, uh, sorry, they are paying an amount up front to get the doctor to bring his practice within the medical facility that the taxpayer provides. Yeah, but yeah. they're not actually acquiring the practice of the doctor. So it's not a sale document, it's just an, it's an arrangement, not yes. a straight-out sale. So, in All fact, right. there is no goodwill be, uh, oh. being, char- uh, being transferred. The doctor still had his goodwill despite what the contract said. Huh. And so, uh, now, over the course of uh, the years in this particular uh, question, there were around about, I think it was 550 of these payments made. So it was quite a frequent thing for the taxpayer to make such payments. Right. And so the, the judge held that the commissioner, in arguing his case, the commissioner was not um, distinguishing between what is commercially essential to a business structure and with the business structure itself. So the commissioner was saying the taxpayers acquired a business structure. The court said, no, 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 that's not what hap- what's happening at all. What they're doing is they're paying something to draw it into their existing business structure. Mm. They're not actually uh, bringing in a business structure. What they're doing is uh, it's like a um, a sales for a fee paid mm. to gain sales, and so uh, a principal case or an important case in this was the BP Australia case back in 1965, mm. where BP got tax deductions for paying money to service station owners so that they would exclusively sell BP petrol, 
and so that was held to be deductible, and so that same principle applied. Another one to keep an eye on, John, I suppose, mm. in, in the future course, and do you think that's, well, we don't know if that, that'll be appealed or not, but if we get us up to the full federal court, we'll all have to take notice. Yes. Um, okay, um, anything else for us, John? Yes, there's an interesting case to do with the issue of uh, what is written in the minutes of a trust in order to make the distributions from that trust effective. So this is a case called uh, the trustee for the Whitby Trust and some others. Yep. A long and complex case, but it is something that I would recommend all uh, practitioners take note if you have trust clients, and most do, the way the minutes are prepared are fundamental to whether it is effective in distributing the income of the trust. Okay. And that was what this case was about. So the minutes, not the trust deed, just the minutes that are taken during the course of the life of yeah. the trust. Or, well, usually at 30 June. Right. So right. The, the trust it makes income for the year, yep. and then the trustee, under the rules of the trust deed, must decide uh, how to distribute the income of the trust in accordance with the trust deed. Yes. Right. So this case uh, was in the administrative tribunal and um, um, we're a little bit hampered in this because not all of the facts were quite there but reading into it what's happened is that the trust has made a reasonably large gain over a number of years through a subdivision of land and uh, they purported to distribute that income to uh, three different entities as beneficiaries over a four-year period right and the AAT held that those distributions were not effective, even though there were distribution minutes signed by the trustees. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the trustee contained a clause that said the trustee could later on certify that certain distributions were valid, mm -hmm. and they had done so, and still that wasn't effective. <laughs> so um, it is quite a complex case, and it involved some... Uh, disclaimers of distribution entitlements, and I don't want to go into that because it's just too complicated right, to go right. through. Sure. But the point was the examination of the minutes themselves. Now, the trustee was a company, a corporate trustee, and one of the things that the AAT looked at was the constituent document of the company to see how it went about actually making its decisions by directors and shareholders. And it held, the AAT held, that the company had not uh, followed its own constituent documents. Right, I see. Now, uh, in my experience, it is very, very rare for uh, an accountant to go and consult the constituent documents of a trustee company yeah, yeah. to make sure that the company is following the rules that are in its constituent documents as to how it makes decisions. Mm. But the AAT did this and held that they weren't uh, following their own uh, constituent documents. Yeah, yeah. So that was uh, one point. One would assume that a company would be doing the, the right thing, but obviously not. Well, it, the thing is that uh, with companies, most accountants will just assume that if we say, here's the director's meeting and... Yep. Um, you know, the, the normal details, yep. that, that will be effective. Mm. Uh, and people don't think to look at the constituent documents. <laughs> but, um, for example, the document, uh, sorry, the minutes, did not say who was present at the meeting. 
So they held that that was something that was required. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, so the other thing was that the terms of the trust deed itself were not observed. In this particular trust, the, it was a discretionary trust, and the distributions need to be approved in writing by the guardians of the trust. Now, not all trusts have guardians, but it's not uncommon to find them. So the idea of a guardian um, who can be also the appointor, but the guardians of the trust, is that the idea is that the guardian is there to stop the trustee doing things that the guardian doesn't want. Right. Now, in this particular trust, the distributions of income had to be approved in writing by the guardians, and there was no such evidence that that had been done. So on those two points, the minutes were held to be ineffective. And um, to sort of cut through the facts, what then happened was that the trustee uh, finished up being assessed under Section 99A at the top marginal rate. Now, there's some other interesting facts in this to do with disclaimers of of the child beneficiaries as well, right. but just for the sake of time, we won't be able to go into that. But it, um, it is a, a long and complicated case, but if listeners are interested, I would recommend it to you for something to read yep. to really get behind the idea of what makes valid minutes. Valid distribution. So Whitby, W-H-I-T-B-Y, if anyone mm. wants to chase that down. That's, uh, this, so it can get so complicated, can't it? When you throw in documents and uh, constituent documents and guardians and all sorts of things, yes. uh, to some solid, some solid reading. All right, um, John, I know you had, uh, I saw a document on your desk and you brought that in with you today, which is good, a practical compliance guideline. Tell me what that's about. Yes, so uh, it's a kind of a minor point, but something that uh, makes it difficult for people who uh, make superannuation contributions just before year end and they don't arrive at the super funds bank account until after year end. Ah, oh, yeah. From so yeah, June twenty nine, you make a payment. Doesn't arrive till J- July two, yes. etc. Therefore, is it allocated to the, for this year or that year? So, what's the uh, PCG? P- PCG twenty nineteen slash D eight. That's correct. Okay. So uh, the issue. So the technical point is that even though, uh, say, an employer has paid an amount prior to the thirtieth of June, or prior to the first of July. Yep. If it is, the contribution is made when it arrives in the bank account of the superannuation fund. So what the tax office have said in relation to businesses that use the small business superannuation clearinghouse, right. and note it's only for those, right. that if uh, a contribution is made by an employer into the small business superannuation clearinghouse, and it's not received by the superannuation fund until after the 30th of June, that the tax office won't apply any compliance resources mm. to working out where the amount, whether the amount is actually deductible or not. Right. And of course, right. when you use the small business clearinghouse, it goes into the clearinghouse, that is in the tax office mechanism, yep. and it takes a little time for the money to arrive in the bank account of the superannuation fund. Yep. So at least uh, from that point of view, um, that the tax office aren't saying uh, the, that they're going to change the law, which perhaps might be a better way of dealing with it, but there's just simply saying that if it's clear that you've made the payment to the small business superannuation clearinghouse yep. prior to the 1st of July, 
then we'll just say that it's deductible and leave you alone. Okay, yeah, that's good. Well, that's, now, a, that's a bit of reassurance. Just note that this is a draft PCG, oh, so right. uh, it'll probably go through as is, I'd say, but it is draft. Yeah, yeah, but something to be aware of. Okay, um, thank you, John. That's a bit to uh, take on board, actually, for the beginning of the year, but it sure. all sounds like it's worthwhile to, to get under your belt, all these uh, different guidances and court cases and things. Um, thanks for your time. Okay. Good S- listeners, thank you, and please join us again next time.